Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Eight years ago, with millions around the world dying every year from the effects of smoking, the World Health Organization vowed to push back hard against the tobacco industry. In 2021, the government of New Zealand picked up the gauntlet and unveiled a radical plan. We want to make sure young people never start smoking. As they age, they and future generations will never legally be able to purchase tobacco Because the truth is, there is no safe age to start smoking. They're aiming to create the first smoke-free generation anywhere in the world since tobacco was discovered, having passed a bill through Parliament that should effectively outlaw cigarettes for younger New Zealanders. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the fags end. Should we follow the Kiwi smoking ban? OK, first, a fessing up. When I was a teenager, I nicked my mum's cigarettes. Consulate menthol, cool as a mountain stream. Then, when I was a student and poor, I used to smoke 10 park drive a day. Then I got a good job, and I graduated to 20 silk cut. And all that time, I knew it was bad for me. And most of that time, I wanted to give up. And, bit by bit, so slowly, the walls closed in on our smokers. Now, it amazes me anyone still does it. But they do. So I was particularly interested when I saw what was being proposed over 11,000 miles away. I'm Bridie Witten, a political reporter based in the Parliamentary Press Gallery in Wellington, New Zealand. And before that, I was a health reporter. Tell me, did you or any member of your family ever smoke? Oh, yeah. I think um, my parents smoked right up until maybe the 80s, till people knew it wasn't good. (laughs) When I was younger, 18 and going to pubs and things like that, it was a lot of people still smoked. But there's definitely been a shift now. Like I'd say, if you went to a pub tonight in Wellington, there'd only be a handful of people smoking, especially young people. Most people may be vaping. You know, smoking is not really, people don't really think it's an attractive thing to do here. 
Bridie, yeah. let's go back to 2021, mm-hmm. and you were called to a press conference with the health minister. How did that day go? Yeah, so Dr Aisha Virrell is our health minister, and we had a big press conference that morning at 10am. We knew it was going to be a big deal because... I'd spoken to a press secretary at the time who had said, this, this will be a big deal, but didn't know much more than that. On the morning of the press conference, we got given sort of physical copies of the press release half an hour before we had to be at the actual press conference. So sort of had half an hour to read and digest this big document. And yeah, we're all pretty like, wow, that, that is, a, that is a, big, a big step and sort of in a direction that is unprecedented. So read it and then was sort of thinking, oh my goodness, I have to make this into a succinct first sentence when there's a lot of prongs to it and it's pretty major and I've got to get my head around it. So I actually called the press sec, made sure I had my head around it, worked up a quick story and then sort of went to the press conference to see what she had to say. Bridie had just read a document that proposed a huge shift in policy. New Zealand was to become a smoke-free nation by 2025. Among its plans was a law that would ban anyone born after 2009 from ever smoking by raising the legal age for buying cigarettes every year. Nicotine levels in all tobacco products would be significantly lowered and the number of places that would be able to sell cigarettes drastically reduced. Having digested this at speed, Bridie took off for Parliament where the live announcement was to be made in a grand chamber. The banquet hall, it is the most grand room in Parliament in the executive wing. It's got rounded um, tables and would seat quite a majestic room. It's got high roofs and sort of an echoey feel to it and, and wooden floors. And in the room were sort of all your leading public health officials and community members that were sort of on board with, with the sort of smoke-free work to make, to make that happen. So, yeah, bundled in there and, yeah, a, a huge announcement. We are also reducing the appeal and addictiveness and availability of smoked tobacco products. New laws will mean only smoked tobacco products containing very low levels of nicotine can be sold, and with a significant reduction in the number of shops that can sell them. Let's go to that now. So, Aisha Viral, first just tell me a little bit about her. She is quite interesting. So, she has a medical background. Her background is also, in, she's sort of an expert in infectious diseases, and she sort of came to the public consciousness when she was criticising the government for its COVID-19 strategies around contact tracing. She was a public health lecturer as well, catapulted from that position into Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's cabinet, which is obviously a huge leap, and so doesn't necessarily have the sort of schmoozy social aspect that other MPs may have. That's just not really her. So I actually interviewed her when I was a health reporter. My impression of her then, she seemed very pragmatic, very factual, and definitely someone who doesn't even slightly exaggerate something for dramatic effect. So she's that sort of person. Really interesting. And let me make absolutely certain that I understand the proposal, which is every year you tell another group of people that they can't buy cigarettes. Yes. The legal age of buying cigarettes will go up every year. And sort of starting from people born on or after January 1st, 2009. So they will be the first cohort coming through. And then every after that, it will go up and up and up. 
I don't want to seem preposterous about it, but let's imagine. Do you eventually get to the point where you tell 80-year-olds that they're banned from smoking? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Yeah. As as people age. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, you're sitting in this press conference in December 2021, listening yeah. to Aisha Verrill say these things. You've just seen the document. Yeah. But I imagine that the drive to this policy didn't begin in December 2021. Where did it begin? We need to change the norms around smoking in parts of our community. Māori leadership will be absolutely crucial to our success. COVID has shown what we can do when we all work together towards one public health goal. It began in, formally in sort of about 2010. So a select committee at Parliament, the Māori Affairs Select Committee, were looking into tobacco use amongst Indigenous people of New Zealand, Māori people, because at this point in time, about more than 50% smoked every day. So they were looking to the drivers of this in the tobacco industry. So they listened to a whole bunch of submissions. Anyone can submit to this, and they did. There was a huge push from a number of submitters, as per the report, to just ban cigarettes. But the, the committee sort of felt this wouldn't be accepted by the majority of New Zealanders. The other thing they came up with was this smoke-free 2025 goal. And since 2010, the taxes put on cigarettes have been going up and up. So it's been getting progressively expensive. Because of those increases in taxes, the number of people smoking has been dropping quite significantly. So it seems like this is like the the final push to sort of get to that smoke-free 2025 goal, just this sort of last bold move just to try and shift that, that last group of people that are still smoking. So one of the very interesting things that you, you were talking about is just how much higher a rate of smoking there has been in the Maori community. That's right. Yeah. Than there is in the rest of the New Zealand population. Can can we quantify that? At the moment it's well it's dropped down to just over 22% and in the general population it's about 8%. There's health disparities for Maori compared to the other ethnicities in New Zealand across basically everything, but a big driver of the age at which uh, Māori people die compared to New Zealand Europeans or Pākehā is uh, a huge driver of that is lung cancer, which is obviously tied to smoking. So making it very, very difficult to smoke in New Zealand is slated to bring in billions of dollars worth of health savings and save a lot of lives as well. So that's yeah one of the positives that's been touted about it. Do you think it would have happened without Dr Aisha Verrill? Probably not, because it looks like she... You know, it might have been on the cards or on the table a little bit, but you know, it seems like she is the only person that had the gumption to 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 go through with it and and get it across the line. Yeah, so yes, probably not. To what extent do people? Did some people have some people seen this as an extension of what others have described as a hardline COVID strategy deployed by your outgoing prime minister? No, that that link hasn't been drawn, but I can see I can see yeah, why why it may be. The population was generally on board with the COVID measures. So, that's New Zealand's plan. It means in practice that in 2027, those turning 18 will not be able to buy cigarettes. And get this. With that year-on-year increase rule, someone buying a pack of fags 50 years from now would need ID showing they were at least 64. 
So far, the plans seem not to have provoked much of a backlash. So, could we, should we do something like it here in the UK? Let's examine the state of national health when it comes to smoking. I turn to an expert who's been looking into smoking addiction for over 40 years. I'm Professor Robert West. I work at University College London in the Division of Epidemiology and Healthcare, and I'm a behavioural scientist working primarily in the field of addiction and within that on tobacco use and smoking. Now, did you used to smoke? I did used to smoke. At the time I was growing up, and I am now in my 60s, smoking was pretty prevalent. I actually was very anti-smoking until I took it up. But I took it up at school at the age of around 16. For a lot of young people, the image was part of it. And I, I liked uh, cigarettes like Sobrani Black Russians and <laughs> you know, fancy cigarettes like that. I think we should just explain this was a cigarette that was actually in a black cigarette paper with a gold filter. And it, I think it was some kind of Turkish tobacco, wasn't it? It was, and it was very harsh. (laughs) (laughs) What made you stop? My girlfriend at the time, uh, who later became my wife, one evening I came home and she did make a comment. And I thought, you know what, actually, it's not very nice for whoever you live with. So I decided to quit. Okay, now let's talk, uh, define one term right at the beginning, which is what is smoking addiction? When people say, and I certainly was addicted to smoking, that we're addicted to smoking, what is actually going on? People think about addiction as being a situation where you become physiologically dependent on something. So when you don't have it, you experience withdrawal symptoms and you end up just using that drug to stave off withdrawal symptoms. That's certainly a part of it with smoking, but it's not the whole story by any means. Because if it were the case, then you could help people off off cigarettes really easily. You just get them through the withdrawal symptoms, which last about four weeks on average, and then they'd be cured. So what's really happening, uh, the key thing, is that the nicotine in cigarette smoke gets absorbed really quickly into the lungs and then travels very rapidly to the brain. And what it does is it causes release of a chemical called dopamine in a part of the midbrain called the nucleus accumbens. It's a sort of pleasure center. But more than being a pleasure center, it's a teaching center. Dopamine release in that part of the brain tells the brain, hey, wait a minute, what were you doing just now? Whatever you were doing, do that again the next time you're in this situation. (laughs) And, And you don't even have to experience any pleasure. It's just like, just do it. That corresponds so closely to what I think I felt looking back on it, that sort of impulse, this is a moment to do this thing. Let's now look at the current situation in the United Kingdom as it stands today. Now, how many smokers do we have and how do we define a smoker? A smoker is defined as anyone who says yes to the question, do you smoke cigarettes or tobacco at all nowadays? That includes non-daily smokers as well. The prevalence in the UK, it's around 14 to 15%, of whom in this country, the vast majority smoke every day, and the average cigarette consumption is about 11 cigarettes a day. How bad is it for our health? What can we say about how many deaths it causes a year, both here and globally? 
In the UK, it's causing around 60 to 70,000 deaths a year still. Previously, it caused double that amount and more. Globally, it's causing around 8 million deaths a year. So you can see pretty comparable, if not somewhat higher than we've seen with COVID even, and that's on an ongoing basis. It is still an absolutely massive ongoing catastrophe. Now, what can we say about who in society is most affected by the consequences of smoking? It is, as with so many things in in health, the people who are least well off. You also see people with mental health problems, particularly people with serious mental disorder who have a much higher smoking prevalence. What would we say about it as compared with, say, alcohol addiction or serious drug addiction? In terms of the number of people it kills, then it's way out ahead of other addictions. But if you look at something like alcohol dependence and cocaine to some degree and and heroin to a significant degree, you've got a very serious acute problem on your hands. You've got a serious risk of dying right now. But of course, no one wants to die 10 years earlier and and suffer smoking-related diseases. So, Right. I entirely take your point, which is that the effects tend to be delayed. Nobody tends to die of cigarette smoking overnight because of an overdose. Mm, Exactly. They're vaping, not smoking, and they're not alone. New figures today show the number of people using e-cigarettes in the UK has trebled in two years. They've divided medical opinion. Some experts argue e-cigarettes help smokers switch from more harmful tobacco cigarettes. But just this week, the World Health Organization called for them to be banned indoors. Let's talk about for a moment about vaping, because since I was a smoker, vaping has come in and there's a lot of talk about it now. In the first instance, what can we say about how vaping is going, how many people are vaping and whether that number is growing or declining? And then we'll talk a bit about how worried we should be about it. I can give you the data, actually really up to the minute data for the UK, Around 10% of the adult population use e-cigarettes. Most of the people are either smokers or uh, they've used it to stop smoking and are still using vaping. But we are seeing just recently a rise in the proportion of never smokers who vape. And that's, I think, of particular concern because vaping is without doubt much less harmful than smoking, but it's not harmless. Do you think that in 20 years' time, given what you've said about how some people actually are vaping who didn't smoke, we might be all sitting down and saying, we've got to do something about this vaping stuff. I doubt it, to be honest. If we look at the likely risks of vaping, compared with smoking, they're very small. But I may be wrong. It is possible that we'll discover that there's something that it does that we had no idea that, that it would do this and we then have to act. Coming up, we look at how and why the smoking culture in this country has changed and ask what the government is doing about it now. But first... I'm Aarti Nachipan. I'm the economics correspondent at The Times. 
We're going through a cost of living crisis and understanding economics is core to understanding what is going on and why. And I love my job because I get to make that accessible to people and bridge that gap. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How mild, how mild, how mild can a cigarette be? If you're listening right now and you were born, let's say, after 1990, it's probably useful and perhaps even eye-opening to recall what things used to be like. Let's rewind to the 1960s and 70s. Robert and I remember a time when the smoking culture we had was... Everywhere. Everywhere. You know, I mean, doctor's surgeries, (laughs) lecture halls, supermarkets. Or cinemas. Or cinemas, yeah, yeah. Or tube trains. Yeah, everywhere. I started my working life in the civil service, and I used to fly around every now and then in a private jet with my boss. My boss smoked like a chimney, and you could hardly see from one side of the aircraft to the other. I mean, now it's weird if you smoke in most sections of society, but in the post-war years, particularly if you're a man, it was pretty weird if you didn't smoke. So people just smoked wherever they liked, and if you didn't like it, it was tough. So when did things start to change? Smoking prevalence peaked early 70s. It was around that time that it was really becoming known exactly how harmful smoking was or is. Over the course of the 70s, as the message got through, uh, we saw a a fairly steep decline in smoking prevalence 
And then in the 1990s, that stalled. And it was really in the turn of the century, around 2000, that we saw the decline sort of come back again. And it wasn't an accident. It was because the UK government actually put in place a really serious tobacco control strategy that was based on evidence. What you're talking about there is the government doing something in a big way up to 30 years behind the science. Mm. Why had they delayed so long? This is a, a bone of contention, I think, that, I mean, partly... You know, policy always delays, you know, it lags behind the science. But partly the tobacco industry spent huge sums of money lobbying, muddying the waters, indeed, in some cases, actually recruiting scientists to question the evidence. But in addition to that, the Treasury, which felt that obviously it was getting a fair amount of money from tobacco duty, was not massively on board with the idea of seeing a huge reduction in smoking rates. So there were kind of vested interests at work here. It's not very edifying, but unfortunately, it's probably not the only example in policy. In 1998, something does happen. You get this tobacco control strategy. And I believe there was a, a, a white paper produced by the health secretary at that point. This was really the, the, the watershed. At that time, the new Labour government got in and the health secretary was a guy called Frank Dobson. And Frank Dobson when he was live, I, I spoke to him about this. And his big thing there was inequality, health inequalities. He'd become convinced that smoking was a major factor. And he said, okay, well, let's do something about it. And he commissioned this white paper called Smoking Kills, which then set out this strategy and the government implemented it. It was the first time, I think, in any country that we'd seen anything like it. And was it successful? It was. <laughs> it did it both by getting people to stop smoking or supporting people in stopping smoking, but also reducing take-up among the young. You have to be very, a real sceptic to say, actually, this would have happened anyway. This is really interesting because that's a very big success. But we now come to the present day. What started us on this, what was happening in New Zealand. Would you describe what people are now engaged in doing in New Zealand and possibly here as mopping up the last of the smokers? I don't think we're quite there yet. I think in New Zealand they're closer. Overall prevalence is 8% and ours is 14 We want to try to get it below 5%, but I think we're certainly close to it. So that's interesting. We are comparable. Now, they've had this new legislation in New Zealand. Last year, something also happened in the UK, which I have to admit, I didn't notice at the time. Tell us about it. Well, what happened was that the then health secretary commissioned Javid Khan, the former chief executive of the Bernardo's charity, to produce an independent strategy report on what we should do in this country about smoking. And to be honest, I have to say I was a bit sceptical, given the political climate as to whether this was something that would ever go anywhere. And I had no idea what Javid Khan would come up with. And I have to say, I was massively impressed. What Javid Khan did come up with was kind of like, if you're a public health scientist and you've got all this evidence telling you what will make a difference and what indeed will be popular among the population, there it is. It's all on the list. And it includes things like taking on board the New a lot of what the New Zealand government are actually doing. But it also includes things like, you know, really investing 
in treatment to help people stop smoking, which more than pays back the money you you put into it. What did Javed Khan say about vaping? I think he became convinced with what you might call the UK model, which is to say, well, okay, let's look at the evidence on the harms and let's look at the evidence on whether it helps people to stop smoking, if so, how much. We've done research and others have done it as well, showing that vaping has contributed to the decline in smoking prevalence in this country. And Javid Khan said, yeah, I look at that evidence. I think you're right. And so he says, yes, we should have a, I would call it a balanced approach to vaping. Some of my colleagues vehemently anti-vaping would call it promoting vaping. But I think the key is in this country that we've got pretty good legislation around controlling advertising and promotion and so on. And so it is in our gift to prevent the companies that would otherwise do so from promoting vaping to children and to young people. The Khan report also suggested that, as in New Zealand, here in the UK, we should consider raising the age limits year on year until no one can buy a tobacco product in this country. But this idea appears to have been shelved. More widely, do we actually have a smoking policy or any targets at the moment? We don't have a target as such. We have what the government calls ambitions, which I think is (laughs) a sort of way of saying we don't have a target. I'm quite downcast about the current state of the sort of political will to do anything about smoking. My sense is that there is none. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm being unfair, but you know, reading the runes and looking at what's coming out of the government in terms of its budgets and in terms of what it's saying, I see really no appetite at all to do anything uh, serious about smoking. Is that because you don't think they'll spend the money on it? Or is that because you think that they don't think there's a political advantage to them in it? I'm speculating, but I don't think that they think that supporting or promoting or helping people to make significant behavior change for the benefit of their health is their responsibility. The reality is that all of our behaviors are affected by the environment in which we live, and the government has a role in creating and and shaping that environment. And in the case of the UK, the kind of policies that are in the Khan report would be hugely popular. It's not like, you know, the government would be doing stuff to people that they didn't want. People would be going, yeah, bring it on. But what was their reaction to the Khan report then? As far as I can see, a big silence. (laughs) We asked the Department of Health when making this podcast what the current status of Javed Khan's report is. They told us they are still considering the independent recommendations made in the smoking review and further information will be available in due course. They also say they remain committed to their 2030 smoke-free ambition and that smoking prevalence in England has gone from 20% in 2010 to 13% today. If the government did nothing or not very much, would our own individual choices and the trend in our choices mean that actually, eventually, smoking would more or less die out? 
I'm pretty confident that it wouldn't. I think that if we look at the experience of the UK in the 90s, and if we look at the experience of other countries, what you see is that if you don't actively do something to address smoking, then it doesn't decline. And part of the reason for that is that you've got a a very, very powerful industry with a lot of clout selling an addictive product, and that's always going to find a market. I suspect that if we stop doing things about smoking, then it'll just find a level, and that level will probably be a bit higher than it currently is. Should buying cigarettes eventually be outlawed? Well, we're going to consult on uh, a strong whole package of measures to tackle smoking in this country. The government's not on course to meet its 2030 target. And one of the things that was recommended to the government in one of their own reviews was phasing out the sale of cigarettes altogether over time. So we'll be consulting on that and a whole range of other measures. So that is something possibly a Labour government would outlaw the sale, the buying, the smoking of cigarettes eventually. Well, the New Zealand right. government are doing it. We want to see how that works. But I'm genuinely curious if, if we're... What did you make of the fact that the shadow health secretary, Wes Treating, said that Labour would consider a New Zealand-style gradual ban on tobacco? Did that mark for you the possibility of a change of policy should there be a change of government? I hope so. I would really hope that there would be an increased emphasis on public health generally and on reinvigorating our comprehensive tobacco control strategy, because we can't really carry on with a smoking prevalence of around 14 or 15 percent and killing about as many people a year as as COVID has been killing. So the smoking policy is now being implemented. You, you went along to the press conference in December 2021 and, yeah. and it started recently. How's it been going? Well, yeah, it passed, it had its third reading just in the end of last year. So in the last sort of sitting week of Parliament. So we're just sort of, yeah, waiting to see what the next steps are and when they come. And yeah, so we're, yeah, there's actually not much, that much to say beyond the theoretical at this point. Hello, welcome to BBC World News. The New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has made the surprise announcement she's standing down. She'll leave her post at the start of February and won't lead her party into... This summer I had hoped to find a way to prepare not just for another year, but another term, because that is what this year requires. I have not been able to do that. Then Jacinda Ardern announced she was quitting as Prime Minister. Does that mean that the policy may be in trouble or do you think that no matter what happens now, it's going to be persisted with? There could be aspects of the policy that become in trouble, like perhaps if we do get a centre-right government, centre-right coalition government in the next election, which will be there towards the end of this year. So there's a few other Labour policies that National, our sort of centre-right and Act, the sort of further to the right, have said are their bottom lines, you know, these are things we're going to throw out when we're in government. It's not been one of those. So they probably won't won't bother with it. And again, there is a sort of general support of the smoke-free 2025 goal anyway. So probably not, but maybe tweaked. The policy as a whole will probably stay. Probably more trouble than it's worth for them to, you know, try and reverse it or something. It'd be quite expensive to do that. So I doubt they would, yeah. Do you think you've learned anything about your fellow New Zealanders during the course of covering this particular story? I think concern for other people is possibly a a big driver of the push to be smoke-free. 
So maybe that, you know, there is a sense of individualism, but there's also an overwhelming sense of community and duty of care to other people, very broadly, that maybe shines through a bit with the, you know, the lack of pushback against this. People can see the health benefits and kind of just think that's fair enough, really. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Bridie Whitten, a political reporter at Stuff.co.nz, and Professor Robert West from University College London. The producers today were Will Rowe and Shema Bact, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.